Attention friends, the episode you're about to hear was created prior to the enactment of the Well-Ordered Society Act. It is maintained here as a record, an archive, and a legacy of the wandering aimlessness that preceded our current predicament. It represents one step of many on the evolutionary journey from inherited defaults to holy, blessed, righteous surrender in the service of play. Enjoy. The peculiar evil of silencing the expression of an opinion is that it is robbing the human race, posterity as well as the existing generation, those who dissent from the opinion still more than those who hold it. If the opinion is right, they are deprived of the opportunity of exchanging error for truth. If wrong, they lose what is almost as great a benefit. The clearer perception and livelier impression of truth produced by its collision with error. That was a quote from John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. Um, honestly, it's a pretty good book. Um, I don't know how many people have probably come across it or who have read it. I don't know how many people would be familiar with that work, but I highly recommend reading it. Um, I'll be sure to leave a link in the show notes to Mr. Mill's On Liberty. For those who don't know who John Stuart Mill was, he was an English you know, philosopher, political economist, member of parliament and civil servant. <laughs> I'm reading from the Wikipedia here, um, more or less verbatim. And uh, I suppose, you know, you could just consider him an English philosopher. Um, according to Wikipedia here in the overview, it says he was dubbed the most influential English speaking philosopher of the 19th century. He conceived of liberty as justifying the freedom of the individual in opposition to the unlimited state and social control. You know, that's interesting. Um, I've heard of Mr. Mill, uh, and I certainly, uh, you, you hear, it's one of those names when you're studying history, I think, especially in the United States, where, you know, you're just kind of loosely familiar with it. I think many of us are probably that way with the founding fathers. Obviously, you know, like the, you know, the main founding fathers, the ones that became presidents, whatever, James Madison, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, um, Ben Franklin, right? Um, although he was never a president, but you're kind of familiar, you're familiar with the names, right? You hear the names, and you're like, oh yeah, wasn't that like one of those founder dudes? I think if we were to meander the streets of most major U.S. cities and we were to ask the citizenry about those names, there'd be some, some familiarity. Um, and I think even, I'd even go so far as to say most Americans could give something approximating um, a summary of what those people meant and, and what they were about. Um, they probably would get lost in the details. I myself would get lost in the details. Um, I don't know that we feel the need to maintain the details of those people in our minds. Maybe we know where to find those details. For instance, the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, some of our founding documents, things like the Federalist Papers, etc. I'm noticing, <laughs> you'll have to forgive me for this interlude, I'm noticing here on the Wikipedia from Mr. Mill that there is a section in the table of contents called Slavery and Racial Equality. That's, that's interesting. Let's see. It's interesting because, well, I mean, I guess around this time, this is, he was, let me see, time frame for him is going to be the 1800s. So 1806 to 1873 was his, his lifespan. Um, it's a pretty decently long lifetime, honestly, um, for that, that time of humanity. I actually don't know that. I don't know what the average life expectancy was in that time frame. So I don't want to assume. I know life expectancy has kind of been going up, but uh, I don't know that that was uh, considered good or not for the time. But let's see what this section on slavery and racial equality says before I go talking up his book. That's what you're supposed to do, right, these days. Um, you're supposed to 
make sure that the people you're about to talk about in a positive light haven't don't have some kind of troubled history um, requiring their their cancellation. Let's see. In 1850, Mel sent an anonymous letter, which came to be known under the title "The Negro Question." In rebuttal to Thomas Carlyle's anonymous letter to Fraser Magazine for Town and Country, in which Carlyle argued for slavery. Okay, so Mill sent an anonymous letter in rebuttal to Carlyle. Carlyle wrote a, a letter arguing for slavery. Okay, so he, we're starting off strong. He wrote a rebuttal to an, a letter for slavery. Mill supported abolishing slavery in the United States, expressing his opposition to slavery in his essay of 1869, The Subjection of Women. Interesting. So Mr. Mill has an essay called The Subjection of Women, and in it, he expresses opposition to slavery. Holding to bet, maybe he is pro-women's rights. There's also a section on that. Let's not jump ahead of ourselves. Um, I want to talk about On Liberty, uh, but now that I'm here on this Wikipedia page, I want to dig a little bit into Mr. Mill, because I started this episode feeling grateful for Mr. Mill because of On Liberty. So let me just, I guess, start with that. Knowing no more about his history than because uh, I haven't yet read through Wikipedia to know what his history says about him. Um, having read On Liberty, and on that alone, I'm pretty grateful for this guy. Um, for me personally, I think reading that book clarifies feelings I have about liberty. Here in the United States, we tend to, we tend to talk a lot about freedom, and liberty is like this big thing, people bandied about, and there's also just this general sentiment of how we view, I think, our national origin and the revolution and all that stuff, where generally speaking, liberty is like people are pro-liberty, Generally speaking, it's not, I don't think it's too super controversial to say we, we're, you know, we're the land of the free and the home of the brave, so to speak. Obviously, that history is not perfect. It's a bit pockmarked by a number of negative things that we've done. But generally speaking, um, we have a general, I think, sentiment within our society um, about freedom and liberty. And, and we're a bit more, I guess I'll say dogmatic, maybe extreme about it, I think, than other places I've, I've heard about. Um, now, I don't know if that's just because, you know, I'm taking a very, like, U.S.-centric view of the world. I'm like, oh, of course we love liberty and everywhere doesn't love it as much as we love it. Um, and that's probably wrong. Um, I would argue that there's probably, I know, I personally know of historical facts where that you could use in a case for saying that I'm not correct in that. Um, or that that sentiment's not correct, I should say. Anyway, we're going <laughs> to, we're getting distracted. Starting this with gratitude for Mr. Mill on Liberty. Great book. You should go read it. And the reason I'm grateful is because he clarified for me um, words I could use to describe that general sentiment of liberty. So, like I mentioned, we have this feeling as Americans, um, citizens of the United States, that we uh, love liberty. Liberty is great. I don't, I, again, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find people that really argue against that. I'm sure they're out there, but as a general rule, you know, that's, that's how we feel. Um, on liberty, this book he has, for me, helped clarify a lot what that actually means in terms of like something I can think through, something I can, can state coherently. Now, you don't have to state it coherently. I think it's plenty fine to just be like, America, fuck yeah. And, you know, fire off fireworks on the 4th of July and grill hot dogs and have a great time on all of our, um, all the holidays we have where we are very patriotic and feeling ourselves, as the kids like to say. But, you know, if you're the intellectual type, which I guess I am, kind of, um, it's nice to have some coherent, like, philosophical type words to use. (laughs) And I say that, you know, sort of... uh, I don't know, very casually on purpose. Um, but yeah, so I'm grateful for On Liberty I'm great, and therefore grateful for Mr. Mill because he wrote this book, which I imagine was not popular. And I'm taking that from some of the things he talks about in, in the contemporary times. He seems to be pretty, he seems to be feel like, at least he says, um, that he seems to be like writing this in opposition to a broader general sentiment at the time that suggests his position on liberty would be considered more extreme than other people's positions on liberty. 
and therefore unpopular with the, I guess, masses at the time. I would argue, just anecdotally in my own experience in my current time, probably also somewhat controversial now, maybe not in like the words, but certainly in what those words would mean for how we might act and behave, hence this episode. Hence why I want to talk it through and, you know, just kind of give my own thoughts on it. Again, the, the whole point of this podcast really is, you know, I chew on ideas at this grand feast of knowledge that all humanity has prepared for us, the current living humans. And, you know, I hope to share some of my perspective with all of you so that you might be able to take something away from it or just appreciate and have some gratitude in the way that I do because, you know, I want this to be very gratitude focused. Um, so I'm grateful for Mr. Mill and for On Liberty. And honestly, for anybody who takes the time, anyone who takes the time to write down what they believe, um, especially if it's controversial, I tend to be pretty grateful for those people. They're, uh, I think, em- emblems of courage. Um, and not in like the bravado and, and, you know, that kind of way, but really in a, I don't know, it's a different way. It's kind of an artsy way of showing courage, I think. So, but let's take this little detour into Wikipedia on Mr. Mill. So, slavery and racial equality. John Stuart Mill wrote a letter, an anonymous letter. How do we know that he wrote it if it's anonymous? I'm sure there's a story there. Um, in rebuttal to Thomas Carlyle, who wrote a letter for slavery. In case anyone's not aware, I'm pretty not for slavery. I'm against slavery. Um, I've talked in the past about how I hold condemnation in high regard, and there's probably nothing I would condemn more than slavery, actually. So um, I'm already liking it. We're talking against slavery. Let's see. The Wikipedia, the Wikipedia article quotes his expression of opposition to slavery as follows. This absolutely extreme case of the law of force, condemned by those who can tolerate almost every other form of arbitrary power, and which, of all others, presents features the most revolting to the feeling of all who look at it from an impartial position, was the law of civilized and Christian England within the memory of persons now living. And in one half of Anglo-Saxon America, three or four years ago, not only did slavery exist, but the slave trade, and the breeding of slaves expressly for it, was a general practice between slave states. Yet not only was there a greater strength of sentiment against it, but, in England at least, a less amount of either feeling or of interest in favor of it than of any other of the customary abuses of force. For its motive was the love of gain, unmixed and undisguised, and those who profited by it were a very small numerical fraction of the country, while the natural feeling of all who were not personally interested in it was unmitigated abhorrence. Hmm. I don't know that that is, um, hmm. So Wikipedia calls that an expression of opposition. That seems more like a description to me of his observations of the times as opposed to opposition. Um, I don't want to quibble over what it means to oppose something. Um, but, you know, it seems like the way that's written, it's just very much like this is how, it, this is how things are and were. This is how things were. This is how things are. This is what I remember. This is what I observe about our country and the world at the time. Let's see. All right, the Wikipedia article continues past that, and let's see, blah, 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 blah. Let's see. Ah, Mill expressed his view on antebellum integration. So this is post, he's talking about his view on, uh, I guess, post-Civil War integration. No, that doesn't make sense. Forgive me, I'm wrong. Antebellum, I thought antebellum meant before, but for whatever reason, I said after. What did he say? So he's talking about before the Civil War integration. I cannot look forward with satisfaction to any settlement but complete emancipation, land given to every Negro family either separately or in organized communities 
under such rules as may be found temporarily necessary. The schoolmaster set to work in every village, and the tide of free immigration turned on in those fertile regions from which slavery has hitherto excluded it. If this be done, the gentle and docile character which seems to distinguish the Negroes will prevent any mischief on their side, while the proofs they are giving of fighting powers will do more in a year than all other things in a century to make the whites respect them and consent to their being politically and socially equals. Oh, I like that. Okay. Okay. That's all that's in the slavery and racial equality section on Wikipedia. I feel like, and, you know, again, this is just me. I don't know. You could probably go deeper in that. Then again, in fairness to whoever, to all the various contributors to Mr. Mill's Wikipedia page, um, each of these sections is actually pretty small. Arguably so small as to do no justice to Mr. Mill's opinions on these things. He probably would feel that way, I'm sure, if he were to get over his shock at the existence of something like Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> and then I suppose at his shock, uh, well, maybe he wouldn't be shocked how people are about information given uh, what he wrote in All Liberty. All right, I'm going to briefly skim the women's rights section. Let's see. Mills' view of history was that right up until his time, the whole of the female and the great majority of the male sex were simply slaves. Interesting. Slaves to what? He countered arguments to the contrary, arguing that relations between sexes simply amounted to the legal subordination of one sex to the other, which is wrong itself, and now one of the chief hindrances to human improvement, and that it ought to be replaced by a principle of perfect equality. That sounds pretty pro seeing women as, as equals and not as subjugation, um, as people to be subjugated to their, their husbands. Here, then, we have an instance of Mill's use of slavery in a sense which, compared to its fundamental meaning of absolute unfreedom of person, is an extended and arguably a rhetorical rather than a literal sense. Okay, okay, I see, I see where you're going. Um, that seems like a little bit of a uh, more, more op-ed-ish than I'm, well, maybe that's not so much an op-ed, but that, that's definitely an opinion, Wikipedia. Um, yeah, you're basically saying, interpreting his sense of slavery and opining on it. I didn't know Wikipedia did that. I, it makes sense. I, you know, I'm not against it, but I can't, I'm recalling that, I guess, in this moment, and I don't recall encountering that on Wikipedia before. Maybe I have, and I, I just didn't realize it. Um, what else did he do? Uh, so basically, yeah, he's pro, he's pro women's liberation, let's call it that, um, compared to however women were treated in the 1800s, which I'm sure was not great. Um, I don't say that because I'm trying to like minimize how women were treated then. Um, I just don't. I'm not a woman, and therefore I am disconnected from the details. So I'm sorry. We're not being connected to the details. Anyway, so yeah, that's Mr. Mill. Pretty, pretty strong on liberty guy, hence the book On Liberty. I actually don't know if On Liberty was a book he wrote. I'll think about it. I think it's a collection of essays he's written into a book um, that someone put together and they called it On Liberty. So he's got all these different essays about liberty. Oh, wait, hold on. Hold on. It is a philosophical essay by Mr. Mill. Okay. I take that back. He, he wrote an essay called On Liberty. So I think the book I re, I'm linking to in the show notes is a compilation of essays on liberty. And maybe it in, I'm sure it also includes the essay titled On Liberty. But given the content of it, uh, I'm not surprised that he's uh, not for slavery. <laughs> I'm also not surprised that he has some pretty progressive views on the treatment of women. I like the idea of um, using the imagery of slavery to talk about that uh, lack of um, lack of parity between men and women in the 1800s. Um, you can get, I think, it, sometimes it can be a bit extreme to make comparisons to slavery, um, especially because I think 
it gets it's one of those buttons people hit a lot and and maybe maybe it's like not as respectful to what slavery actually means like how terrible it actually is to make that comparison in a situation where what's happening to the person claiming it isn't quite that bad now what is that bad versus what is not that bad uh you know arguably that's subjective so i also don't know that i want to go around questioning how bad someone feels something they say feels bad but um i guess certainly we can all sit down and look at something and we can say this thing that you're using the imagery of slavery to 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 condemn um does not look as bad as we might all expect slavery to have looked you know so not so much a questioning of how the person feels but maybe um an invitation to that person to help us to see it the way that they see it alas i i see no reason to do that here um because here i'm talking about this book on liberty so what's the big thing with the book right um why do i like it so much well again i already said at the beginning i like it because it gave me as someone who is i'd say kind of an extremist um compared to wherever the center might be i don't know where the center is on people's ideas on liberty but the way i think the way i see people talk about things and the way i see people want things i my guess is i'm probably pretty uh extreme and when it comes to liberty um and certainly to political views that i have espoused openly in the past and i don't hide my political views but this isn't a political podcast um my, i tend to have views on liberty as in leave people alone that, that strike me as maybe a bit more out of the pale than out of the out of the lines of coloring that most people have so i like this this book this essay um because he gives a really really strong articulation to why one might have such a view and i don't think i'm more extreme than john stuart mill so um in fact i'd say i'm probably like right john stuart mill and i are in lockstep opinion wise and, and that's kind of rare actually it's rare that i would say that about anybody hence my gratitude um my gratitude to him for articulating it far better than i ever could I think I re-listened to the audiobook of this, and I was kind of trying to hone in. Well, I was re-listening to it because I just do that every once in a while for funsies. And then I was like, wow, this is so great. I want to talk about it on the podcast because previous iterations of me reading it, I didn't have a podcast. So now I do. Now I can, I don't know. Not that I'm, I don't, it's not like I'm one thing for topics. I actually have like a whole list of things I might talk about and express gratitude for openly to you all. But this is cool because he articulates Something that I don't know that I could have articulated without him doing so. So, hence the gratitude. This is exactly the kind of thing when I say, you know, I want to express gratitude for people who put their ideas out there, who put their creativity out there because it helps us to see things through their eyes in a way where we all may not have seen the beauty they see um, through their eyes if they've not expressed it. So, it's important to have expression on top of um, feeling, I guess. If you feel create if you feel passionate about something it's important that you also express that um because in, in many ways like you telling us what you feel you telling us what you what you what you're passionate about isn't quite this isn't always the same as expressing it you know they're saying i really really want to paint something beautiful and describing to us what you would paint and there's painting the thing some people can be moved by the description alone um others seeing it has to hit them you know and even and even if you can be moved by the painting alone maybe maybe there's like you know there's a, a two levels of depth you can go one where you, you hear that and you're like wow that sounds really inspiring i would love to see that is probably what you'd follow that up with I, I i wonder how many people hear a description of the painting and they think wow that sounds really inspiring and i'm i don't think it could gain any more inspiration from seeing it whereas i do think that alternatively 
if you've never heard any description of a painting, um, but some artist showed it to you, it could hit you in a way where you're like, wow, you feel everything they want. Like you feel what they felt. Um, and maybe that's like, you know, maybe that's just something we're making up in our heads. But that kind of expression is what I think leads us to see the beauty uh, of other people, whether that's, you know, and, and again, there's like 8 billion people on the planet, eight plus probably billion at this point. So it's pretty impressive that there's that many potential options for what could be beautiful. Uh, and, you know, hopefully we all find ways to express that. Maybe not on the historical scale of someone like Mr. Mill, but certainly within our own communities, within our own families, at least, even if it's just us, hopefully we're all finding, hopefully you all, we all are finding outlets for our expression, our creative expression, our intellectual expression. Um, and that's part of what Mr. Mill talks about, right? Um, you know, I started this with the quote, the peculiar evil of silencing the expression of an opinion is that it is robbing the human race. Um, I, I guess I'm just now noticing that, you know, I've been talking about how, we, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and there's like, you know, 8 billion sets of eyes where we can all experience and enjoy different sets of beauty or different, different forms of beauty. Um, and in a way, you know, that's sort of what Mr. Mill is saying here. You know, it's kind of evil to, exp to silence expression of opinion because you're sort of robbing the human race. Now, with opinion, which isn't necessarily the same as creativity or, or community and, and some of the things that I, um, I don't know, I guess I've described the podcast as being focused on. With opinion, it's a little different, right? Because opinion may not be artistic. At least we may not see it that way. Um, he sort of sees it as this um, people's opinions and the expression of them and the dialogue that surrounds them as, as a way to get to truth. So by silencing the expression of any opinion, you, you, you risk that we won't be able to find truth. Um, and as I was re-listening, I'm like, this is actually kind of the, the articulation that is hard for me when I think about why I like liberty. Ultimately, he boils it down to, and maybe this is like not the right summary, but I'm going to take it there because this is what I take away from it. He boils it down to, we make mistakes. It's possible. We know it's possible for us to make mistakes. We know we're fallible. He uses the word fallibility. He talks a lot about fallibility. Um, there's another quote in the book where he says, well, while everyone well knows himself to be fallible, you think it necessary to take any precautions against their own fallibility or admit the supposition that any opinion of which they feel very certain may be an example of one of the errors to which they admit being liable. That's just a really, really fancy way of saying some people don't feel, everybody knows that people aren't perfect. We might all say humans aren't perfect. Everyone makes mistakes. We've got these platitudes of that nature. Um, and he's saying, you know, very few people take that knowledge and then say, what am, I, what am I actively going to do to make sure that I haven't made a mistake? Um, or, you know, he says, or admit the supposition that any opinion of which they feel very certain may be an example of that. So then that's taking it a step further. Um, he's saying few people, you know, ask themselves that question. How do I know if I've made a mistake or not? And then, um, you know, a few people will take that kind of skepticism towards opinions they hold or feel certain about where they say, well, I feel really certain about this, but I could be wrong, you know? Um, and that's kind of like an interesting double whammy, right? If you're not setting up precautions for yourself to figure out whether or not what you know is true. Um, <laughs> and also you're not applying that skepticism of everyone can make mistakes and fallibility to things you are certain about or feel certain about. So I think the key thing that really just makes this stand out for me is that sense of, or that focus on error correction, on fallibility, on it's possible for me to make a mistake. I can make a mistake. Therefore, I have to accept that it's possible I might be mistaken about anything I think I'm not mistaken about. Because if I have made a mistake, of course, I wouldn't know that I'd made that mistake. 
So, you know, that's kind of cool. I like that. Um, now, what does that have to do with liberty? What does that have to do with expression and freedom of expression and, and you know, free speech, I guess, as we might call it today? Um, freedom of expression might be a little bit better because it's, it's broader than just speech. Um, I think that I don't know that everyone sees and appreciates and, and has gratitude for um, that idea existing socially, um, either now or ever, um, or for how, uh, how pretty pro-free expression we are as a country in the United States. Um, I think personally that, and maybe it doesn't seem this way, but I, I certainly feel like overwhelmingly people are more and more leaning in the direction of free expression. The, the number of people who I think seriously don't believe in free expression and would like stand by it when pressed, I don't know that that's like the majority of people out there. Um, I suppose I could be wrong. And, you know, again, I, I, I'm, I can personally in this moment think of a number of, um, I guess, exhibits of evidence that could be brought in a case that someone might make against that position I'm, I, I have. Um, but I, I do think it's kind of interesting to consider. Um, I personally am like, you know, I'm a big fan of freedom of expression. And again, I, I think I have actually pretty extreme views about it. I'm not, I don't believe there's ever a reason to silence anyone's expression. Um, and I, I think, you know, again, I'm sort of locked up with Mill here because the reasons why you would do so are never, um, <laughs> they never overpower for me the risk we take in not opening ourselves to sources that might show how we've made a mistake. Now, you can live with mistakes. Most of what I th we do in life, I think, is just, you know, heuristics. There's, we, we are these heuristic machines where we, we don't always know for certain for certain, but we kind of have to act like we're certain because otherwise life would be a pain. Um, and life is, is, can be a pain enough without having to like go worrying about everything being a mistake. So there's areas where it's like we just kind of act like we're certain. For instance, when I get in my car and I drive on the road, I, there's a lot of things I'm taking for granted about the operation of the car and the other drivers when I do that, where I'm just doing that because otherwise life would be, you know, again, kind of a pain in the ass if I had to, if I were seriously worried um, and not acting as if I was certain about how that's going to go. Even though not only is it possible and probable that it won't go well, like it's, it's like, I don't know, one of the top causes of death is people dying in car accidents. So um, you know, it's, it's pretty risky, but you know, we have this, we, you know, we, again, we practically, we sort of have to act with a certainty. I, I like to, you know, I kind of hold the same views. I think I'm going to have some, uh, I guess, practical examples from my own life for why that's the case. For one, I have made a shit ton of mistakes in my lifetime. Um, a metric fuck ton of them. Um, eh, maybe not a metric fuck ton, but a lot, <laughs> I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. Um, and having, overcome some of them having learned from some of them both because of friends i have who are really great but also from uh, people i wouldn't call friends acting and behaving and expressing in a way that showed me how i was wrong all that together has led to me having i have specific things in my life where i'm like yep i was wrong about that and i didn't know at the time i was wrong because i don't know that i ever really know i'm wrong about something i don't think anybody i don't think anybody like knows for sure something's wrong, you know, or they know they're, know they're, knows for sure they're wrong about something and then just like fucking sprints at it like they're certain. I'm sure there are reasons for that. Like I think I can imagine a practical reason why you might do that, why you might feign um, certainty in a wrong thing or allegiance with the wrong thing. And, and again, I think it does come down to allegiance. It comes down to loyalty. It comes down to, I may know this thing is wrong. I may think this thing is wrong, but what's more important to, to me is my loyalty to whatever group or institution or people also 
believe in this wrong thing. Um, but I don't know that like a bunch of wrong things could really survive if the people who um, supported them didn't actually believe they weren't wrong or believe they were right. And that's certainly been me. I mean, the things I've been wrong about, most of the things I've been, oh, pretty much no. All of the things I've been wrong about that I can recall are things where at the time I didn't know I was wrong about them. I didn't think I was wrong about them. But I was at least open to that, the idea that I could have been wrong, right? Um, and I certainly wasn't afraid that hearing from someone that was opposite to me would, would I don't know, somehow shake the strength of my conviction, right? I mean, if I, if I believe that I'm right, then what harm does it do me to hear from people who are wrong? Um, and, and I think this is kind of where, you know, part of how I came to this, um, I guess, way of seeing things is, well, I'll get, part of it is that if I'm, I've always kind of had this thought that if I, if, if I believe the truth, then no amount of falsehood thrown my way could unsettle the truth. So if something's true, then I have no reason to spend any energy stopping falsehood because the truth will always win, right? I don't know where I got that. Maybe from my parents. I'll have to ask them at some point if they feel that way. But I certainly know that I've had this sense of like, yeah, the truth always wins. You know, it's kind of like how people say love wins. And I, I believe that too. Love, you know, wins over hate. I think truth wins over falsehood. So I don't need to go attacking falsehood for truth to win because truth is true. And so in some ways it's like falsehood just this illusion. I don't need to go attacking it. I don't need to go fighting it because truth will win all on its own. Um, now, again, there are probably numerous examples one could bring of that not being the case. Um, and I'll just say in the moment, you know, that I think some of it has to do with like the time scale. So you could probably, you could certainly identify a period of time. Like if you'd looked at me at some point in time in my life when I was wrong about something, and then you said, see, you were wrong. And so during that time, if the scope of your look was only in that time, then you could argue, you would be correct in saying that truth had not won. Um, and so I, you know, I sort of extrapolate that to any time we think truth hasn't won. It's just, you know, maybe it just hasn't won yet. Um, and I certainly believe that it always will. Um, and then the other, other than the second reason why I kind of came to this, um, other or why I, you know, I'm pretty, pretty extreme about expression is that, uh, in a, you know, the first reason being, um, just this view on truth and that the truth will always win. So it doesn't need to be, I don't need to fight any expression of falsehood or even expression of vulgarity because the truth will always win. So I, the, the truth isn't threatened by falsehood. Or vulgarity. The second reason is that I have personally been in a group of people in, in a category of people that people would say, oh yeah, you're expressing falsehood, or oh, you're expressing uh you're expressing vulgarity, right? And so really also from personal examples, um, kind of lead me in this <laughs> kind of led me to this position of being a, a liberty extremist. Um and you know, extremist is like a really strong word, and I suppose I should well, that probably in as high, high a regard as condemnation because all I need is for someone to come at me with, oh my God, you admitted on a recorded thing that you put out into the world that you're an extremist. I'm trying to think if I care. I, I can't see any negative consequences coming from um, my coming out as an extremist, but <laughs> on, on liberty, not on everything. Uh, it's one of the, I, uh, there's very, very little actually I'm an extremist about, but things like truth will win and things like liberty, I'm pretty. I'm a pretty big extremist on. Um, now, um, if you've ever been on the other side of someone thinking that you're wrong or that what you're you're expressing is false, then I think you start to understand why freedom of expression is so valuable. 
and, and you know, really what I want to do with this episode is like, just be grateful for people who fight for freedom of expression and hopefully invite people that aren't as into freedom of expression to the table of appreciation and gratitude for it because it protects them too. Uh, even if they happen to be in a power wielding position over those whose expression they might want to limit. Um, so the examples, there's two examples actually where I've been in this situation. One is I come from a pretty religious family. Um, and because of that, that probably explains the extremism. I probably, <laughs> I probably got the extremism bug from them and then I just applied it to different, something other than religion. Um, when I finally broke free of the holding the views that my parents held religiously out of purely dogmatic reasons, right? Um, I, I did believe them. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I, I think I, it was my own serious reckoning with them and my own serious holding of them that led me away from them because I've always kind of been of this opinion that like the truth is the most important thing. And that's where I'm like, I don't know if I got that from them because not that they don't care about truth, but we don't, we came into very different places religiously. Right. So, and you know, there's reasons for that too. That may have nothing to do with the truth. And again, back to allegiance with people or institutions that you look up to or, or hold close to you that I think might win loyalty and allegiance to that kind of thing. Maybe wins in people's hearts over truth. Um, that doesn't mean truth wins, doesn't win in general. Um, but certainly I think in people's hearts and for maybe the span of some lifetimes, um, loyalty and allegiance goes further. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. I'm, st I'm only 30. So it's possible that be between now and my death, I'll, uh, I'll, have, I'll have concluded something about it, but because I'm not dead, there's no conclusion there. Um, but because of my religious differences, once I was on the other side of that religious wall from people who were like, this is literally the truth of God himself <laughs> and being opposed to it exposes you to hell. An eternal damnation. You know, that's a pretty heavy thing to be faced with. Um, and interestingly, I guess, I, I, you know, this is a point to both my parents and I guess to the church they went to, and I guess maybe a counterpoint to the extremism thing, because they never really felt the need to suppress my feeling that way. Um, at no point was I told I couldn't say it. But there is a certain pressure you have uh, when that's levied against you. And again, not from my parents that I can recall, and not from the church they went to that I can recall, but certainly from the private Christian school I went to, <laughs> there were instances, individual instances. I don't know that, again, I can't say it's a representation of the entire institution, but certainly individual instances of wanting to limit the mere expression of opposition. And I don't just mean saying what my opposite views were, right? Like it's one thing to say, hey, you can't walk into our church and yell that God doesn't exist, right? I think that might be a pretty fair thing to say. I am the freedom of expression extremist. Now, standing outside the church, I don't know that I, I agree with somebody trying to limit that, but if I, I accept that someone can say, hey, you can't come into my house and spit in my face um, with your opinions. And I can consider your opinion spitting in my face in my house because I just can. And, you know, personally, I'm like, all right, I don't need to do that in your house. Um, and, I, and I don't know that I would side with someone that felt the need to do it in your house. Um, but, uh, you know, so it wasn't quite that. But there's also some level, and again, this is only in, in, in limited instances, of people saying, you are not even allowed to let people know that you don't share the religious views. We don't want you to let people know that your views diverge. That's kind of a very different thing, right? So it's one thing to say, hey, don't come here and, and go shouting, there's no God from the rooftops, because in this town, we believe in God. That's one thing. It's a, a completely different thing to be like, and if you're drunk at a bar late at night, and the drunk pal next to you says, hey, what do you think about God? If you say, I don't really believe in that kind of thing. Also, we don't like that. <laughs> That's kind of, you know, that's where, you know, my little um, freedom of expression and extreme, extremism starts to ignite a little bit because I think that's 
that crosses the line. Um, now, I think it's plenty fine to say we'd prefer not to know, but for the guy who asked what my opinion was, he probably did want to know. Uh, no, otherwise, he wouldn't ask. So it'd be a little weird to the bar owner to be like, hey, you're not allowed to answer. Conversation in this bar is not allowed to be free between the participants <laughs> and the patrons. And that's kind of where, you know, again, I, I get pretty, I'm pretty staunchly on the side of, I mean, I guess, you know, again, as a bar owner, you certainly can be like that, but it's not good. It's not good for your bar. So, you know, I don't want to be make, I'm not making a statement necessarily about how I feel people should be using their property or what they can or can't do with their property. It's more like, is it good for your bar? Like to do that? Personally, I don't want to come back to your bar if you're like that. Um, I don't think other people want to go to your bar if you're like that. Um, but maybe there's a clientele at your bar that's like totally into that. So who am I to say? Really not, not want to get there. But like I've been in that. Uh, that's, that's one example where I've been in the, I guess, outgroup expression-wise where um, I do have some distinct memories of, hey, you shouldn't even express that because what if, what if, and this is from well-meaning Christians who believe that, you know, the Christian God is, is God. <laughs> you know, what if people knowing that you don't believe that story, what if just them knowing that you don't leads them to question, not even leads them away, but leads them to question. Um, and, you know, I guess going back to my own extremism, it's just, it's always been kind of weird to me because it's like, well, if the Christian God is what we all think he is, and if our belief in it is as strong as we all say it is, then knowing there are people out there who don't think that way should be no threat. Um, in fact, I would even argue that that person shouting from the rooftop that there's no God is also no threat. Um, so personally, like if I'm, if I'm one of the Christian senators in a town of, I don't know, senators, if I'm one of the people in a, in a body that makes laws in a town and we all are unanimously good little Christians, if someone comes into the town and they're shouting from the rooftops that there's no God and we have a little vote amongst the power wielders, hey, we should kill that guy or you know, kick him out of the town. Personally. I'd probably be like, why on earth? Um, why do we need to? Why do we feel the need to do that? Now, if he's being loud and like, like, because I don't, I certainly don't like loud people shouting in my vicinity. Um, there's a time when I'm cool with that, like at a rave or a club, or there's definitely circumstances where I'm cool with it. But you know, if it's 2 a.m. and I'm trying to go to sleep, I'm very much not cool with it. But then it's like not about the content of what you're yelling. It's just, hey, it's 2 a.m. and please stop yelling. Um, but <laughs> if we believe in what we believe in and we think it's true and and we believe it strongly. Like, who gives a sh who gives a shit if this guy isn't here? If anything, he's embarrassing himself because we all know the truth, um, unless we are con concerned that we don't. Uh, so that's you know, again, maybe I know that I have, even though I have held very strongly, like opinions that I then later like dropped. I don't know that I've ever been someone that's like, well, I just can't at all interact with or hear from opinions I think are wrong. So again, I don't know, don't quite know where I got that from. I guess in practice, um, my parents and the church they went to wasn't like that. The schools they sent us to, uh, very different. Um, and, and again, I don't want to, I don't want to color the whole institution in that light because again, it's just specific examples of people at those, at those institutions, just like I'm sure there were people at the churches and whatnot who probably would have felt the same. Um, but I just never interacted with them. So maybe this is just a statement about the ones I came across. I have come across people whose view of freedom of expression is not only, um, do I not want you shouting your thing I don't believe in in my face, which I would say is just rude. So I get, I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, I don't even want to know that you exist. I, I, in fact, I'm fine. I don't want you, your existence to be known in my community, lest anyone in my community question their beliefs. I don't know. When I hear that, I'm just like, 
So what exactly are you skeptical about within your beliefs? Why are you not certain? Because <laughs> uh, arguably, if you were certain, you would have nothing to fear from my falsehood. Um, the other example, of course, is um, of where I've been in the position where expression was limited was, you know, I am uh, one of those, as they say, homosexuals. Um, so I've been throughout my life on the other side of just most of human society, I guess, certainly when I was growing up, is very much like not cool with the gays, I guess. The gay agenda, as they say. We, we gays are out here destroying the family. Um, that's the agenda, right? <laughs> the gay agenda is to destroy the family or something. Um, that's another one where, you know, the mere existence itself was, was uh, something that, that was not okay. And so this, uh, I mentioned before I was in the military, and for a brief period of time, um, not too long, like I think two years actually, for about two years of my time in the military, the first two years in the military, don't ask, don't tell was a thing. And so for those who don't know, don't ask, don't tell is this law that um, I guess it was, was named as a, well, I guess all laws are named to be witty. Is that, is that what's, what's happening here? <laughs> They're attempting to be witty. In any case, the idea was we're not going to kick people out for being gay because before don't ask, don't tell, that was essentially how it worked. Um, there were campaigns or whatever you want to call it, investigations to try to root, root out the gays. And I guess the compromise that was come to in the early 90s, I think it was 1992 or 1993, was rather than spend resources trying to find the gays and get them out of the military, we're just going to not ask as long as they don't tell. So basically, as long as nobody knows, they can be around. But the burden of nobody knowing is on the, on the gays. So they have to make sure nobody finds out either. So like, it, I don't remember the particular strictures of it because that was a long time ago. And thankfully, you know, again, I only had a couple of years of that in my military time of, of having to worry about it. But it was like, it's like you could, get, you could get kicked out still if anyone found out. And it was like the suspicion. I think it was like the suspicion of homosexuality. So it wasn't even like you had to do anything or like get caught, you know, doing something that was like, if, if you did something that, that led people to like, oh yeah, that must mean you're gay. Even if there wasn't any like actual evidence of homosexual activity or whatever, Pretty sure that was the threshold. I could be wrong. I might be like misremembering um, based on like a dramatization in my head of how bad I thought it was. But needless to say, it's a pretty strong anti-expression thing. And as someone who has grown up both in the you know, religious, religious community of people who are pretty anti-gay and also the had some experience in an anti-gay military, and I've also just met a shit ton of people who are just like death to the gays. I've actually met people with that mindset or at least who would say that right and and they would probably say yeah i seriously believe that i don't think they would seriously try to kill me but um but they certainly would say something like that right or hold a, an opinion like that um having met those people i've learned anything even those people can be changed their opinions can change their their idea of what they think is right can change based on exposure to expression right and in the couple of examples i can think of it was purely when people when I did finally come out and tell people um, after Don't Ask, Don't Tell was gone, of course, because I was in the military at the time, I had some people I knew who would have called themselves probably anti-gay who were like, hold on a second. You're not like the evil gays that I've heard about trying to destroy the family. You are a normal guy who is also my friend. So like, are you trying to destroy my family? And I'm like, well, no, I'm not trying to destroy your family. <laughs> I don't even care about your family. Um, like no offense to your family or anything, but just I've got my own shit to worry about. Um, and, you know, I, I watched over time, I got to see over time how those people um, changed their minds. The, the, the exposure to my expression as, in, as, a, as a gay dude who's just out here living his life helped them to see that, hey, gay people are actually just like everybody else. 
and then shift now once they because you know now they knew me and they had a personal relationship with me they were able to shift from before being like i am against this uh mythical seemingly distant group of people i don't know about because i don't know any of these people that i know of i'm against these people i'm buying uh i'm willing to to parrot words that suggest those people shouldn't exist or shouldn't have the same freedoms of expression or whatever um as everyone else and so I'm going to you know, be one of those people and then I meet one who I know and is a friend and then I'm like, wait a minute, not only am I able to change my mind and see that, well, wait a minute, gay people may not all be so bad, but also, wow, I can't believe I thought that way. I can't believe that I held on to this idea so deeply and I was thinking about, about this guy, this person I know and who is a friend of mine. Um, you know, and so they end up becoming champions of the cause, right? Or expression in that, in that specific case. So I guess, you know, I take these two examples and I say, well, this is, these are both examples. And, you know, I'm, I, you know, I guess they're, they're, at, they're definitely examples of why I'm biased and probably explains the, extremist, the extremism um, on freedom of expression. But they're also just instances where I'm like, okay, well, I don't know that I could have not been very for freedom of expression given this. Because having met people I know who are friends of mine uh, who held on to strong opinions about gay people, or in the case of Christians, held on to strong opinions about non-Christians, um, because I've even met, I have met strong, strong religious Christians in my life who would have before conversations I've had with them said, well, if you don't believe in Jesus and the resurrection, and all that stuff, you're going to go to hell, right? That's, that's the Christian doctrine. Um, where after numerous conversations, knowing that I do not believe the, the Christian, you know, I don't check the boxes for Christian salvation, would say something like, well, you know, maybe, maybe not everybody who thinks the way you think is going to go to hell. Like maybe, maybe it's more nuanced than that. And maybe we just were interpreting it wrong, which, hey, I'm not going to tell you how to interpret your religion or how to live in it um but even just seeing that shift where someone who takes this like really hard dogmatic like you don't believe in jesus and that he died for your sins you're going to hell seeing that shift from well now i'm faced with the person i know who I, I don't feel like is going to hell and you know i'm at least willing to step into this place of well only god makes that decision and that's between you and god and maybe before your deathbed you'll accept jesus or whatever and you might still go to heaven um but now i no longer feel the need to go you know carrying the picket sign of those who don't believe will go to hell, which I'd call a win, you know? Um, or I don't, need to, I don't need to go around trying to suppress the expression of people who don't believe in Jesus for whatever reason. Um, that, to me, is like hope for freedom of expression and what, that, what, what it does for people. So when I consider myself an extremist in that regard, it's really because, well, I've seen people hold an idea really strongly that they thought was right. And it can even be something that like, the majority of people in an area, in a, in a, in a region, think is right um and then their minds will change right uh both you know i think the probably smaller scale well i guess not technically smaller population wise if you were to look up stats on christianity um but certainly on a smaller scale religiously right because i can say like you know there's my church but you know where i grew up in southern california is much bigger than just that church community so you know could, yeah, i could argue like the church itself was actually in the minority there so maybe it's the church that itself that should have been suppressed which i don't believe by the way i don't hold that view but also, you know, our national policy as a country, at least when it came to the military, was we don't want the gays to be in there. And, you know, we went from we're going to actively try to keep them out and investigate them and find them and root them out to, well, as long as no one finds out, <laughs> which is really what don't, don't Ask, Don't Tell was. It wasn't like we're not going to ask as long as you don't tell. It was like you, the gay person, have to make sure no one ever finds out. <laughs> uh, otherwise, you're, you're done. Um, and that was like a thing that was like national policy. And, I, you know, it didn't die easily. <laughs> um, I would argue that the the people who, who spent years act, uh, of, of um, activist work 
calling for that, fighting against the social mores of expression and what people thought was right and wrong and what they thought was uh, proper for expression and whatnot. These are the reasons where personally, I, I'm somewhat of an extremist for liberty um, and freedom of expression. If for no other reason then, or any reason, for anything where we might have agreement amongst each other um, in a majority where we might say, hey, you know, that thing that person wants to express is wrong, evil, blah, whatever. Insert, insert denigratory word that, you know, here. Insert word of condemnation here. Or any kind of thing like that, we may end up finding someday, you know, our minds change, right? Because we can be wrong. And so it's, it's the fact that we can be wrong that has me at least questioning um, or at least open to the idea of information that challenges what I think is right from anywhere. Um, you know, I can, I can hear certain information and I can say, well, that's not for me. So that hasn't convinced me. Like, I don't know. I don't listen to Alex Jones, for example. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't know the guy. So, but I know he's unpopular. I know that various platforms have removed him. Uh, and if someone were to say, hey, what do you think about Alex Jones? I would say, well, honestly, he's just not for me. I've seen clips. Just not my style, not my content, right? Um, I don't know that I've ever heard an argument he's tried to make, and 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 that I where I was on the other side of it, side of it. But I certainly wouldn't feel like I had to be protected from whatever he had to say, because again, I'm have I have this mindset that, well, if I know the truth, then there's nothing he could say that that's going to make the truth false. So either he's going to say something that would help me to see what the truth is in case I'm wrong, or it'll just be very clear that he's what he's saying is false. Because so there's really no reason to run from. Uh, that kind of thing, right? That kind of expression. Um, and I'm grateful to people who defend freedom of expression. I'm grateful to the, I guess, idea people, you know, the, the early on cultivators of the idea feast, folks like John Stuart Mill, but also people today who are doing work to protect freedom of expression. Um, I certainly throw my hat in with those people as a, uh, I guess, kind of extremist on freedom of expression. Um, I'm certainly aware of lots and lots of cases where uh, people seem to not be about it, <laughs> freedom of expression, because they say, well, what about this particular person who said this particular bad thing? What about this group of people who believe this bad thing and say that bad thing? Um, you know, again, for me, it's like, well, if we have the truth, then honestly, there's nothing to worry about. Now, there's obviously some concern that can happen where um, violence gets involved. And so in the scenario where anyone is saying, based on what they think is true, now we should go kill a bunch of people. I'm just going to tell you all right now. I, I don't believe that. <laughs> I, am, I am hugely, hugely opposed to the idea um, that anybody's belief, anybody's, anybody's truth, anything they're certain, to, certain of, even if I agree with it, that the right answer is almost, well, no, the right answer is pretty much never to go kill a bunch of people for it. Um, I'm just, I, I won't, you won't have me signing up for that. Um, I'm certainly not going to up, sign up to do the killing. Uh, if anything, I'm going to oppose the killing just in principle. Uh, just, I, I know, there's something I think pretty onerous about the idea that you should use your opinions to justify uh, killing that is not based on you know some some sense of justice, right? Um, I don't even really support killing at the hands of justice, so I certainly don't uh, uh, support it at the hands of the opinions of either a mob that is a minority or of the majority about some minority. So that's just me. Um, I have been far too often on the side of someone who had an idea that I held really strongly and was wrong about. Um, I've also been on the side of someone where the majority or whoever that like you were on the, the, the other side of the mob's pitchforks where they were coming for you, been on both sides of it. And I think we're all better off uh, if 
we just don't do that thing where we try to suppress expression. Um, and John Mill, uh, John Stuart Mill, that's what that whole essay is about. So if you're not about that, then I suppose don't go read it. Um, but also if you're not about it, I'm not sure why you're listening to this, this podcast, to be honest. Uh, I mean, I haven't, I guess, talked about this subject in particular, but I mean, here we are on episode six, and I, I feel like everything I've said up to this point has been indicative that this might be my view, but maybe not. Maybe gratitude and liberty are not don't necessarily have to go hand in hand. Um, but I'll just, you know, lay it out plainly. Uh, if beauty is in the eye of the beholder and we all have beauty to share with the world, then my biggest concern personally is that if I silence anyone's expression, if I advocate for that, I might miss out on some beauty that only the, those person's eyes can see, that person's eyes can see. Um, I might miss out on that beauty. And I am a glutton for beauty. <laughs> I'm greedy for beauty. I'm greedy to see the beautiful ideas and creativity that everyone has. And because of that, and because I know I can be wrong, I'm willing to risk that some people out there with objectionable opinions, vulgar opinions, wrong opinions, people out there parroting falsehood, people out there living their lives based on that falsehood, um, I'm, a, I'm willing to accept that uh, the risk of whatever that might mean for, for me and for the beauty of the world. Because I, again, I, I think that there's lots of ways to go about interacting with each other that don't require us to take an opinion, to take a strong stance about expression itself. Um, action, I think it's fair to uh, have you know, feelings and, and condemnation for certain actions, but mere expression, I don't know about that. You're, you're, you're going to kind of lose me there. Um, I think we all have, we all have far too many people, um, far too many contributors to the idea feast that um, fills out all of human knowledge and all of what we have in this world today. We all have so much to be grateful for and all the ideas out there and all of the, uh, the dissenters of the past, the outsiders of the past who stood their ground and expressed whatever it was that they believed. We have so much to be grateful for from that camp of people. Um, we're sure now we see it as like, oh yeah, of course, of course that's true. Um, but back then th that person may have been, you know, had their livelihood ruined, been threatened with death, um, actually killed, uh, where, you know, maybe, maybe it's better to just not advocate for that, uh, based on mere expression alone. And even if you were to say, well, sure, not on mere expression, but for certain actions, you know, I probably still disagree with you because I'm not really a death penalty guy. So even in this, even in a scenario where, you know, a jury comes along and convicts a person and all the steps of due process was convinced as a not death penalty guy. Um, <laughs> I just, you know, again, I'm probably also not going to agree that um, permanent cessation of someone's life is the answer. So that's, almost, that's definitely not the answer. Uh, and then, you know, whether or not you should take action to suppress expression, you know, again, I think if someone is yelling from the top of the rooftop at 2 a.m. while we're all trying to sleep, um, the rudeness of that and the fact that we're trying to sleep is reason to have that person not shouting it from the rooftops. Um, but certainly not the content of whatever they're yelling. Uh, that's where you lose me. It's like, I don't know that I, I would stop a person from doing such a thing based on the content. And, and even for the person who does it at 2 a.m., because arguably, like, I'm not also not going to make the argument that an activist needs to be convenient to the sleepers, right? Um, the guy who wants to yell from the rooftop some truth he believes strongly in. I don't even know that I'm going to say that. Uh, I mean, again, I'd be annoyed. Um, but maybe that's, how you, how, maybe that's how you're effective. Maybe you yell outside the town hall or in the town square all during the day while everyone's awake. No one pays attention because they're just like, eh, another guy yelling some stuff. But it's when he does it at 2 a.m. where maybe finally we listen to the content and we're like, huh, you know, this guy annoyed me and I'm really trying to go to sleep. 
fuck this guy, but maybe he has a point. Or perhaps I think maybe if I consider what he has to say, he'll stop yelling in the middle of the night while I'm trying to sleep. Maybe if we all say, hey, look, dude, we're all trying to sleep at 2 a.m. If you, how about this? On Wednesday at noon, when it, no one's trying to sleep, we will, we will all attend. We'll all go down to the theater and you can tell us what your, your idea is so that you don't do this while we're sleeping. And if we give you that, that place to do that, we open ourselves to your opinion. Um, you don't have to shout it from the rooftops. Um, you know? And I, I'd like to think that for a lot of people, again, the, the vast majority of well-meaning people, and even for a lot of the not well-meaning people, you know, that's, that, it's feeling like they had the chance that has them not doing the asshole move of yelling while we're all trying to sleep. It's when people feel like they're in a corner and they don't have the chance that they go to much more drastic measures. And if they felt like their lives depended on it, well, for one, uh, who am I to tell someone that feels like their life is in danger um, or at risk that they shouldn't do everything in their power to at least get people to pay attention? But also, who the fuck are we if someone's life is that way or they feel that way and we're just like, we don't care that that person feels like their life is in any kind of danger. We want them to shut the fuck up and we don't want to even hear what they have to say and we never want to hear what they have to say. Um, I don't know that I want to be in a group of people that is so callous about the way people feel. Uh, so, you know, again, personally, I want to be someone who at least hears people out, hears their pain, tries to see it from their perspective, tries to put their eyes on and see the world as they see it. Mostly because I'm, I'm greedy. I want to see the beauty they see. I bet there's some beauty, some beautiful thing about the world they see that I can't see because I don't have their eyes. And I think there's something like that for all of us. But even if that's not true, maybe I put their eyes on and I don't see that. I, I, I at least want to be, I want to be known as someone who will do that. Um, even for someone whose ideas I might hate or whose approach in expressing those ideas might annoy me, uh, I still want to, I guess, be known as someone that gave, gave it a shot. Because, um, you know, it's, I don't know. I guess I feel a lot better when I can say, you know, I considered it. And it's just not for me. Sorry, bud. Please stop yelling in my town when I'm trying to sleep. I listen to you. So if you're going to do it, please go to the part of town where I, that's like out of earshot from where I'm sleeping. Uh, and and I, will even, I will even do you one better. I will help connect you with the people in my, on my street. So you're not yelling on our street, but please go somewhere out of earshot of us with that because we listened. We heard you out and we don't agree. We still don't agree. We still don't agree. We still don't buy it. We still don't even really want to hear it. Um, so please go over there because we listen to you. And I found generally speaking, most people are like amenable in that way. Unless, you know, there's something, some deeper problem going on. But again, if there's a deeper problem, I think we can help people with the problem. So the other thing about listening in that scenario is maybe you learn about some problem or some situation that is causing the person to feel like they need to resort to such extremes that you can address and maybe do have some common ground on, even if the content of the opinion is not something you agree with where you can say, well, Hey, I don't agree with your ideas, but I do think this thing that is like kind of a source of your approach that's fucked up or annoying. I do see how that's annoying and I can actually be with you on that. Um, but please, for the love of God, stop screaming from the top of your lungs at the top of my roof. Um, and if my neighbors are like, well, what if we just shoot the guy? I'm going to be the guy who's like, no, I'm not okay with that. I am personally not okay with that. Uh, and if you decide that you want to shoot the guy, um, make you, you, you damn well better be sure that I'm not around because I, I, don't know that I want to be around a bunch of people and just kind of stand there while they kill someone whose only crime is being annoying in the expression of their opinions. So, I don't know, that's just me. I feel like, uh, I don't know, I read that book recently. Like I said, I, I reread it this, re listened to it, I should say, because I don't, it was an audiobook, but 
re-listened to it this week, and I was like, damn, this is so good. I want to talk about this on the podcast. I want to express some gratitude for John Stuart Mill. I want to express gratitude for people who fight for freedom of expression. And I want to express gratitude for living in a country where freedom of expression is a thing. I am incredibly grateful, personally grateful, that we are, I live in a country where freedom of expression is a thing. I am grateful that I have family and parents and people around me as a kid where I could you know, depart from the, the beaten path of the religion everybody around me had and, and say, hey, I don't really buy that religious story, um, and I could express it. You know, again, there were instances, little instances here and there of it being wrong. And I'm even grateful for people who, even though they may have made my life painful and they certainly led to some lasting trauma around being anti-gay or not, not being okay with that or even trying to supp- suppress my own expression of it, I am grateful that all of those people that I know of came around. Uh, they, they weren't so in opposition as to, I guess, kill me, right? So I'm, I'm lucky in that sense because not everybody has that, that luxury, not in America and not around the world. Um, but I'm also grateful that they did come around. I'm grateful that, you know, at some point they listened either to me or to someone else and that had them change their opinion and it had them become an advocate on behalf of, um, you know, the cause of people who are oppressed, whether that's homosexuals, whether that's black people, et cetera. So whether it's religious minorities, I should say as well. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm more on the side of that because I think we all get much further that way. I think we all get to share and more of the beauty that each of us sees when we have that openness. And I'm so, so grateful that I've lived a life where um, I could express, you know, who I was and my opinions without too much threat of harm. You know, again, there's some trauma, but there's trauma in everything. That's life. Um, and I'm not trying to downplay it. I'm not trying to justify it, but I'm grateful that people finally came around. And I think it's being for freedom of expression that gets us to a place where um, or the people who might still be in places where they don't have it, or the people who might still be in places where they are being oppressed, either because of their religious opinions or their ethnicities or because of their um, sexual orientation or whatever it may be, um, freedom of expression really is being advocates of freedom of expression, not just for when we agree with it, but also for when we disagree, is really what allows us to break that down. I think it's like the strongest, strongest protection against tyranny we have, other than being armed, which I'm also a pretty big believer in. That's, that's how we get to a better world. That's how we get to a place where um, I can put on your eyes and see the beauty you see, and you can put on my eyes and see the beauty I see, and neither of us feels like we have to guard ourselves against expressing who we are or being who we want to be um, just because expression itself is, is criminalizable. So um, that's pretty much it. That's the episode. Um, if you want to listen to the podcast, um, obviously you're already listening to it, so thank you for listening. Um, but if you want to find you can follow it or any of that your favorite platform you can go to just here.club um the i tweet occasionally from the podcast twitter account at just here club also coming soon um i'm gonna do like clubhouse sections uh, sessions so i've been told that uh i've gotten feedback that one way conversations where it's just me maybe are not the best thing in the world and that's what the podcast is so i'm not changing the podcast but um i'm open to like a clubhouse session so i think starting hmm, I don't, I'll get back to you on the date, but starting at some point on Thursdays, the podcast comes out on Tuesday, I think doing like a Thursday clubhouse thing during a set hours where we can have like a dialogue if that's warranted. Um, or perhaps I'll find people on clubhouse that don't even fucking listen to the podcast and we can just have a cool conversation. We can talk about gratitude, um, but be on the lookout for that. If you're following the Twitter account, I'll be sure to tweet about it. If you're um, on the website, if you, if you subscribe, I'll be sure to shoot out a note to the mailing list for that. 
Otherwise, I hope you all have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful first week of December. Second week of December? No, first week of December. And uh, I'll catch you in the next one. Have a good one.